station. The third day of a temporary ceasefire in Gaza goes smoothly, with more hostages freed, including a four-year-old American citizen. How likely is it the ceasefire will continue beyond the initial four-day agreement? For Sunday, November 26th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Ahead, we'll take a close look at the new voters who will play a key role in next year's presidential election. As I look at a younger generation, they want someone who checks every single box for them. As ski season approaches, we'll also hear about the new unionization push among ski patrollers. And it's holiday movie time. We'll look at which perennial classics hold up. Santa here? I know him. Like, of course, Elf. And which ones maybe don't quite actually earn that designation. All that and more after these news headlines. Stick around. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. For the third day, a fragile temporary truce has held between Israel and Hamas. Hamas freed 17 hostages, reuniting some families, while Israel released 39 Palestinian prisoners. NPR's Brian Mann has more from Tel Aviv. 14 Israeli hostages, including four-year-old Abigail Idan, who is Israeli-American, were freed by Hamas, along with three hostages from Thailand. It's been a complicated, painful process for many Israeli families, including that of Mirit Regev. Regev told reporters Sunday she's overjoyed. Her daughter Maya was freed by Hamas yesterday, but her son Itai is still being held inside Gaza. 39 Palestinian prisoners were also released by Israel. Hamas issued a statement offering to extend the ceasefire while more hostages and prisoners are traded. In a video address, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said he's open to continuing the temporary truce, but he said this war will continue when the exchange is done. Brian Mann, NPR News, Tel Aviv. In Burlington, Vermont, police say a white man shot and injured three college students of Palestinian descent. A manhunt is underway. Vermont Public's Elodie Reed has more. Burlington police say the three 20-year-old college students were visiting Vermont for the holiday break and walking down a city street Saturday evening when a white man approached them and shot them. Police and the civil rights group Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee provide conflicting accounts of whether the shooter said anything to the students. But all parties say the victims were wearing the Palestinian scarf, the keffiyeh, at the time. The ADC says the students were also speaking Arabic when the gunman approached. The victims' families are calling for the incident to be investigated as a hate crime. For NPR News, I'm Elodie Reed in Vermont. Georgia is preparing to celebrate the life of former First Lady Rosalind Carter, who died last Sunday at the age of 96. Sam Greenglass from member station WABE in Atlanta has more. Rosalind Carter lived longer than any other First Lady except Bess Truman. And while tiny Plains, Georgia looks much as it did when she was born there in 1927, Carter witnessed nearly 10 decades of history and often helped shape it. Planned tributes will trace some of that timeline. On Monday, family and friends will lay a wreath at her alma mater, Georgia Southwestern State University, now home to the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregivers. In Atlanta, the former first lady will lie in repose at the Carter Center, the global health and democracy nonprofit she co-founded. The journey will end back in Plains, where Carter will be buried on Wednesday. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. Senator Elizabeth Warren calls the shooting of three Palestinian students in Vermont deeply disturbing. Senator Warren said on X, formerly known as Twitter, that as a nation we must do more to rein in hate and rising Islamophobia. And again, police in Vermont say they are still searching for the shooting suspect, described as a white male. The war between Israel and Hamas has sparked heated protests and fiery rhetoric at college campuses. The city of Haverhill is getting millions of dollars in federal funds to hire more than a dozen new firefighters. Massachusetts Congresswoman Lori Trahan will join city officials tomorrow to announce the $4 million grant from the Federal Emergency Management Agency. The money will be used to support 16 new firefighters and a permanent staffed ladder truck at the Bradford Fire Station. On the MBTA, get ready for some Green Line disruptions. To accommodate repairs, the T is suspending service on portions of the Green Line starting tomorrow and lasting through next Sunday. Service will be suspended on the B branch between North Station and Babcock, on the C and D branches between North Station and Kenmore, and on the E branch between North Station and Heath Street. Shuttle buses will replace trolleys on the BCD, the BCD, and D routes, that is, and the T says E-branch riders should use Route 39 buses, which will be free. If you're heading to the Rentham outlets tonight, brace yourself for some traffic jams. Rentham police have closed or restricted driving on 12 roads around the shopping plaza to improve traffic flow tonight. It's 5.05. The Patriots lost to the Giants this afternoon, 10-7. And the Celtics are getting ready to host the Atlanta Hawks beginning at 6. Tonight, expect some rain. Could be heavy at times, low around 40. Tomorrow, we wake up to more rain, clearing by the afternoon. Temperatures in the mid-40s. And the sun returns for Tuesday, high of around 40. Right now, we have 43 degrees under a blanket of clouds in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. For the third day in a row, Hamas and Israel have exchanged hostages and prisoners, and for a third day in a row, a temporary ceasefire has held. The group of Israeli prisoners released today by Hamas included an American toddler. One more exchange is expected tomorrow, and then the four-day ceasefire expires. But Hamas and Israel have both indicated they want to extend it. Let's get the latest from NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Hey, Daniel. Hi, Scott. So who did Hamas release tonight? Hamas released 14 Israelis, uh, including women and children, and the youngest is that American dual national you mentioned, her parents were killed on the Hamas attack on October 7th. And the U.S. says this leaves nine more Americans believed to still be uh, held captive in Gaza. President Biden today said he's glad for uh, her release. Uh, One of the Israelis released today is a dual Russian citizen, and Russia says it negotiated his release separately with Hamas. And then in addition, uh, Hamas also, also released three guest workers from Thailand. Mm -hmm. In exchange for these releases, Israel again freed Palestinian prisoners. Tell us about them. There were 39 Palestinian prisoners released today. These are boys in their teens. Uh, They were held in Israel on offenses like 
throwing a firebomb, which caused no injuries. Um, 18-year-old was freed to Gaza, and Israel said that he had crossed from Gaza into Israel and that he had been sent to carry out an attack in Israel. What's interesting is that Israel's far-right security minister has ordered that no celebrations or expressions of joy take place with the return of these Palestinian prisoners. Police have confiscated suites at one home. Eyewitnesses have said Israeli police stormed a home of of a female prisoner released and and beat those inside. Uh, But in the West Bank, uh, many of the released prisoners have received a hero's welcome. Yeah, yeah. So the hostages and prisoners have been released again. But this is also now day three of the ceasefire in Gaza. No bombardments, no attacks. What was it like in Gaza today? There were hundreds of trucks that delivered aid, badly needed supplies like fuel for bakeries, blankets for winter. Our producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, says uh, he saw dozens of people who were wounded when they were run over by an aid truck. They were trying to grab whatever they could from the truck uh, when they were run over. He says people formed long lines today to try to fill up uh, their tanks with cooking gas and their cars with gas. But went home empty-handed because uh, all the fuel and and cooking gas being brought in are going to the United Nations for bakeries and for sewage plants to power those and and hospitals as well. Uh, But medics did manage to deliver 100 trucks of food and baby formula and other aid to northern Gaza. That is the hardest hit area where Israel is occupying, and it's the largest aid convoy to that part of Gaza since Israel's ground invasion last month. So tomorrow is the last day of this temporary ceasefire. How likely is it to be extended? Well, Hamas is saying it wants to extend it, and and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel today said he is willing to extend it along this formula of you know one day more for every ten more Israeli hostages that it, that Hamas manages to locate and free. Um, but Netanyahu said that he spoke with President Biden today and told him that. After that, it is back to war. Mm -hmm. And actually, Netanyahu paid this remarkable visit to Gaza today to visit the troops, perhaps the first such visit of an Israeli leader to Gaza in in many, many years. He said Israel is going to go all the way till we destroy Hamas, he says. And that just tells you, first of all, how fully in control and secure the army feels that Gaza is uh, to let Netanyahu go there. But it's this real symbol of defiance. And, Mm -hmm. And the big question is, You know, how long will this ceasefire last and will Israel be able to resume the war after it? Daniel Estrin, thank you so much. You're welcome. Younger voters, Gen Z and millennials, are becoming a bigger and bigger part of the political process. What exactly that will mean in 2024 is an open question. But NPR has a new reporter looking for answers to that question. Elena Moore will be covering new voters as part of our elections team, and she joins us now. Hey, Elena. Hello. I'm so excited to be here. So I paused reading that because I thought, do we still consider millennials young voters? And I say this as a proud elder millennial, geriatric millennial, willennial, if you will. Uh, am I still a younger voter? Like, how? who are younger voters? Who are we talking about here? I feel like you brought me here just for me to tell you that you're young. I appreciate um, <laughs> it. Thank you. A younger voter can be many people. A younger voter could be you. It could be me. It could be Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who is famously a millennial. It could be Gen Zer Olivia Rodrigo, the pop star. Technically, if you are part of Generation Z, you are born between 2013 and 1997. So for the millennial generation, that's anyone from 1981 to 1996. So it's a big group Mm -hmm. and it's a growing group. Regardless of what generation we're talking about, the view the stereotype of young voters for a very long time has been passionate, loud, 
don't always vote. Is that the case with the young voters we're talking about right now? I mean, not really. If you look at the last few major elections, young voters have really surprised people. Go back to even 2020. We're in the midst of the pandemic and young voters show up. It was one of the highest turnouts for young voters since like the 1970s when they lowered the voting age to 18. Mm -hmm. And not only did they show up in high numbers, but they overwhelmingly voted for now President Biden over Trump. And then two years later in the midterms, younger voters showed up and they actually overwhelmingly still voted for Democrats. So in the last like 10 years or so, young voters have really exploded onto the scene and showed people we're here, we're loud, and millennials and Gen Z are actually going to keep growing as a portion of the electorate. Next year in 2024, they're going to make up about half. And then over the next 10 years or so, it's going to surpass 50 percent. We are talking about Gen Z and millennials here as collectively young voters, but many megabytes of Internet content have been <laughs> have been devoted to the fact that there are wide cultural differences between those two generations. I'm thinking about millennial voters who came of age in the 2000, the 2004, the 2008 presidential elections, and I feel like party identity was a big part of political engagement for millennials of that age. This is this is the era that red state and blue state was was invented as a terminology and took hold. But listening to your reporting over the last few years, it has been very clear that Gen Z voters don't really see themselves that way. They might be very passionate about an issue, but they do not call themselves Democrats or Republicans. What's going on there? You're completely right. It's a completely different playing field for these people. They grew up in a time of very intense political division. And instead of having candidates that they really rallied around, it was issues. And I think about during these tragic mass shootings that happened over the last decade, young people kind of stepped up and became voices on gun violence. Young people stepped up and became voices on climate. And even more recently, after the Supreme Court issued the Dobbs decision that overturned the constitutional right for an abortion, young people rallied around abortion rights and showed up for Democrats because of abortion. So I would say that this generation values issues over party, and we're seeing that in data. I mean, in the most recent Harvard Youth Poll, they found that actually only about a third of young people actually identify with Democrats, despite overwhelmingly voting for Biden, despite mm -hmm. overwhelmingly voting for Democratic congressional candidates. Really, only a third actually call themselves Democrats. Which is one of the many reasons why there's a lot of Democratic angst right now about whether Gen Z voters in particular show up for President Biden next year when he runs for re-election. I mean, how are young voters feeling about the president right now? Honestly, like every time I go out and I talk to young people, it's like clockwork that yeah. President Biden's age comes up. It's either as a joke, it's a quip, or it's like serious concern. And that's not to say they didn't vote for him, but there are a lot of issues that this generation is passionate about that some advocates say haven't been fulfilled yet. And let's talk about a big one of them. Um, over the past two months, Biden's decision to support Israel in its war against Hamas, despite many, <laughs> we've, we've seen the polls, we've seen the protests, many young uh, progressive voters being deeply opposed to Israel's military intervention, calling for a ceasefire. How big of a problem is it for Biden right now that so many people that he needs to vote for him next year are so mad at him? I mean, this is definitely a huge thing. I was out 
covering a demonstration organized by pro-Palestinian groups. I talked to some people who say that this support of Israel is the last straw for them. I talked to other people who don't go as far as that. One woman, uh, Prachi Jever, she's 23 years old. And again, she did not say she's not supporting Biden in 2024. But she said when she thinks about him running for re-election, it's very grim. Gen Z cares so much about human rights as a movement. And to have our commander in chief not actually follow through with that and not support that is really disheartening. And, you know, what she's saying, she might not be alone in that. In a recent NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll, we found that 50 percent of Gen Z and millennials actually sympathize more with the Palestinian people over the Israelis. Mm -hmm. And that's the most of any generation. So the biggest question I have about your reporting is this trend line you've talked about, about the tension between uh, voters who vote on issues but don't identify with parties. How does that work in an election that is very likely at this point in time to be an election that's a question of whether Donald Trump returns to the White House? Yeah, I think that young voters are wrestling with that already. I talked to one young woman named Sarah Evangelista, and she is 29 and is a Jewish American and identifies as a Democrat. And we were talking about a range of things, but she told me she had kind of come to terms with the fact that even though she's a Democrat and has issues with her party and candidates within it, she knows that no candidate is perfect. Um, She compared picking a candidate to picking out lunch. As I look at a younger generation, they want someone who checks every single box for them. They want this satisfaction of getting like like a sweet green salad. The ingredients are perfect and it is exactly what I want. And I know that that is not not the case. There is not often a a candidate or an elected official who gets it right with you 100% of the time. But they need to be reflective of your values most of the time. Guacamole greens for president. <laughs> I'm going with a harvest bowl. Elena Moore, our, our political reporter covering new voters in the 2024 election. Thanks so much. Glad to do it. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining us. I'm Josie Guarino. It's 518, coming up at 6 on 90.9 WBUR, actor Bradley Cooper on his new movie, Maestro, and what it's like playing the legendary conductor Leonard Bernstein. Stay with us. Whether you're traveling, resting, or picking through leftovers tonight, head to WBUR.org slash podcast picks for good listening this holiday. That's WBUR.org slash podcast picks. 43 degrees in Boston under cloudy skies. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Hamas today released 17 more hostages, including a four-year-old American girl, as the third day of a fragile truce continues to hold. They're getting a medical checkup before being reunited with their families. More hostages are expected to be released tomorrow. Meanwhile, Israel released 39 Palestinian prisoners. Pope Francis says he has a lung infection, but he says he will go later this week to Dubai for the climate conference.
And at the weekend box office, The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes took the top spot for a second week with an estimated $28 million in ticket sales. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. Today is the final installment of our series, The Unmarked Graveyard from Radio Diaries, untangling mysteries from America's largest public cemetery. Neil Harris was last seen on December 12, 2014. You can't help but wonder what her life has been. Novelist and author of Happy Island, Ms. Dawn Powell. So many questions, man, so many questions. Hard Island is a narrow strip of land off the coast of the Bronx, where over a million people are buried in mass graves with no headstones or plaques. When New York City gets hit hard by an epidemic, like the flu of 1918, or more recently COVID, Hart Island gets hit hard too. During the 1980s, that epidemic was AIDS. More than 100,000 people would eventually die because of AIDS in New York City alone. Many were buried on Hart Island, and some of their families never found out what happened to them. Radio Diaries brings us one of their stories. Oh my God, that's the island. It's crazy. It's not a lot of land for that many people to be buried. At first I thought it was eerie, but it's kind of pretty because the fog just like erases the city. It's just so beautiful. It's nicer than I thought. My name is Annette Vega. I'm a registered nurse, and I am 53 years old. I grew up in the Bronx. I lived with two of my younger sisters and my mom and my dad. Looking back, it was a great childhood. So, when I was about seven or eight, I found out that my dad wasn't my biological father. That's the first time I came to know that there was someone else out there. This is a picture of my biological father, Angel Garcia. He looks like he's in his 30s, and he has a long mustache and a DA, hair that's kind of brushed back. And I'm like, who was this person? Why hasn't he been in my life? Could he be looking for me? I just felt a persistent urge to find out. Hello. Hey, Mom. Hi, Annette. Hi. So I wanted to ask you some questions, if you don't mind. Yeah, go right ahead. Okay. 
the questions are related to Angel Garcia, who's my biological father. No kidding. No kidding. <laughs> All right, mother. So what do you remember about him? He was very sweet. He was good to me. He knew he was good looking and he was sure of himself and who knows. He had this cologne. Oh my God, it was the best cologne ever. He left that cologne in my drawer and I prayed. My mom had me at 16. It was a mistake. Not a mistake, but you know, I wasn't a planned pregnancy, you know? <laughs> she was a teenager growing up in the Bronx and there was a young man Everyone called him Machu. You know, they had a little summer romance. He'd be working in the auto body shop and she'd go home happily with grease on her backside of her shorts. And I'm like, mom. He used to love to drive. He used to steal cars. And I think he used to steal cars just for the fun of it. Wow. He was a bad boy. So I guess maybe I was into bad boys, who knows? <laughs> Aren't we all? Do you remember the last time you guys saw each other? I seen him after I gave birth to you. We hooked up again, and um, then he used to pick you up I, and, and talk to you, and we used to go on car rides with you and everything like that. And then he disappeared one day, and I went to his job, and they told me, no, that there was another woman looking for him and all that. So I never went back, and I never looked for him again. I remember my mom telling me he was kind of a tough guy, and she thought that he was in a gang. The South Bronx, one of New York City's roughest neighborhoods. And since the mid-60s, home to an outlaw motorcycle gang who called themselves the Chingalings. I remember hearing about the Chingalings. They were a notorious motorcycle gang that people were fearful of. I thought he might be with them. So what does it mean to be a Chingaling? The religion we got is a Chingaling religion. <laughs> That's the only religion we have. Ride our bikes, party, hang out. This is like a family thing. So I literally walked up to the Chingling's house in the Bronx. It's like painted in black and, you know, motorcycles all around. And guy comes out looking rough. He comes over, he talks to me, and I tell him I'm trying to find my father. They call him Machu. He has green eyes. Oh, I haven't seen that dude in years. Another woman comes out and she's, you know, out on the stoop having a cigarette and she goes, I remember him. I remember one night we were partying really hard. I got so messed up and he helped carry me upstairs to the bedroom. That man could have done anything to me. And he put me in the bed and put a blanket on me and left. Nice guy. They wished me luck. They said, I hope you find him. I felt kind of silly looking for so long without a real reason as to why I was looking for him. I didn't need him to be my father, but I still really wanted to find him. There were thousands of questions. 
where's his family? Do I have brothers? Do I have sisters? Do I have a grandmother? Do I have aunt? Where's his people? It was late January. I got a message from someone on Ancestry who gave me names. I used the white pages, I used Facebook, and I sent the messages. That evening, my phone rings. I hear this woman crying, emotional. She said, Annette, mi sobrina, mi sobrina, tanto tiempo, tanto tiempo que tu estaba buscando. All this time, my niece, I've been looking for you. I was like, you have? You know about me? Hola. Hi, Titi. Bendición. Te quiero mucho. So I'm here, I arrived at my Titi's house, my Titi Miriam, my father's sister. It's a really pretty home. My name is Miriam, Miriam Garcia. My brother is Angel. Angel was your brother. He was younger than you or older than you? Mi hermano menor. En la escuela, él no... Her younger brother. He only went to sixth grade, but there was something about him that he could just pick up things. Like he learned how to work on cars. He can take a car that was destroyed and make it look like new. Que yo recuerdo a mi hermano como un hombre bueno. Angel was a good man, but he had a really, really hard life. Por eso me, me da tristeza hablar de él, pero yo sé que en mi casa había unas situaciones. There was issues in the home growing up because their father was an alcoholic. Porque mi papá era alcohólico. And my father went to the streets. And he started using drugs at the age of 13. Ese era el problema de él. Él estaba, estaba vendiendo droga. He was arrested and in prison from selling drugs. But it wasn't like a traditional prison. It was like a camp. So she said in 1985 or 86, police came to the house to tell them that he escaped. They don't know how he did it. And someone had to have helped them. Mira, yo recibí una llamada de él. She said she received a phone call from him in the summer of 1989 that he was very sick with pneumonia and he wanted to come home. Con mi esposo. Después yo fui a Nueva York. Her and her husband went to New York. They walked through the streets looking for him. Pero no. Pero más nunca volví a saber de él. But she never heard from him again. She hasn't seen him in 30 years. She said, I don't think he's alive. Okay, so this is what I find out. I received an autopsy report, and I actually have it with me. And it says, Angel Garcia died August 3rd, 1989, at 11 p.m., 37 years old. Immediate cause of death, pneumonia. 
due to AIDS as a consequence of chronic intravenous narcotism, IV drug abuser. It says he was buried in a place called Heart Island. People are buried there. People with no ID on them. People who haven't been claimed. And then I spoke to Titi Miriam. We went through it together and she put it down and she said, this is him. You found your father. All right. What's up? Hi. Nice to finally meet you. Yes, me too. I can't believe I'm standing here with my brother. Like, he smiles. Like, he's so cute. Look at him. Thank you. I'm like, it was so nice. So I found out that I had a brother named Angel. I've never met him. He also didn't know where our father was. Clock 201, Section 3. Right there. 201, Grave 27. So this is the plot where Angel was buried. Our dad. Our dad. Wow. I was always his biggest fan, like rooting for him. Yeah. I must have been like seven years old. And we went to the prison to visit him. He gave me like a boat made out of like wood. And, and that's the last time that I seen him. Well, now I know where he's buried. The people that loved my father, whether it's my brother, my aunt, my cousins, everyone talks about how he was such a good guy. I think they were afraid to tell me the bad stuff, whether it's being in a gang or being in prison, being an IV drug abuser. You know, Angel was not an angel, but it's who he is. I mean, it's not a complete story without all of it. I'm putting flowers here at his grave, just planting and marking, because he's here. He's not lost. I'm happy to see where he lays and to like mm -hmm. tell him like, yo, Annette found you, she found us, and we're here. And now we know where you are. That was Annette Vega and her brother, Angel Garcia. And a final note, after more than a century of Heart Island being mostly off-limits, the New York City Parks Department started hosting public tours this week. The story was produced by Nellie Gillis of Radio Diaries. Hear all eight episodes of The Unmarked Graveyard on the Radio Diaries podcast. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Labor unions have won some significant victories this year. Strikes in the auto industry, the healthcare sector, and Hollywood have led to new contracts. And now that energy is making its way to higher elevations, unionizing is growing among ski patrollers at resorts in the Mountain West. Matt Bloom from Colorado Public Radio has more. <laughs> 
the base of the Breckenridge Ski Resort is full of early season visitors, waiting their turn to hop on a gondola and ride up the mountainside. Beautiful blue sky. Ryan Deneen is a longtime ski patroller here. One of his many jobs is to jump into action if the gondola malfunctions. We would uh, attach ourselves with a uh exactly like a zipline kind of wheeled mechanism and lower our sound ourselves down to the cabin with um, some evacuation gear. He also detonates explosives to control avalanches and is an emergency medical technician. He says this is his dream job, but it's gotten harder to do it while supporting a family in Breckenridge where the average home price is over $1 million. We're being told that we're being paid at the highest end of our industry while we're also being provided with links towards um, food banks in the community. In 2021, that disconnect led Deneen to organize a union at Breckenridge, one of 41 resorts owned worldwide by the conglomerate Vail Resorts. I would hope that a union could potentially raise the bar as to what one can expect to make in a mountain community and create a pathway for a future. The newly unionized patrollers won a boost in top level pay from $27 an hour to 32. There are now ski patrol unions in at least four Vail-owned resorts. United Ski Patrols of America says it's fielding inquiries from workers from California to the East Coast. And one resort in Colorado is holding an election this winter. Aaron Hatton is a labor researcher at the University of Buffalo. They're no longer accepting those old terms of we'll pay you in fun. We'll pay you in, well, this is just something you would do anyway or that you love. The National Union says their membership has doubled in five years to almost a thousand members at 10 resorts in Colorado, Utah, and Montana. Hatton says industries that have historically offered seasonal jobs or haven't been seen as long-term career options like ski patrolling are seeing bumps. Those workers are now saying, hang on, we're workers and we demand more than we're getting. We deserve more than we're getting. Vail Resorts declined to be interviewed for this story, but says the company has invested $175 million in increased wages, benefits, and for affordable housing. Patrollers at Colorado's Purgatory Resort organized last year. Dave Rathbun, the resort's general manager, says it initially opposed that, but he admits hiring this year has been easier after union negotiations led to higher pay. It still shows me that people will value this lifestyle and they're gonna try the best they can to make it work. Back at Breckenridge, patroller Ryan Deneen says the union negotiated wage increase there is great, but still not enough to afford living nearby. But I live in town subsidized housing. My children go to subsidized daycare. Um, we live off of subsidies, and and that's a part of, of what I think is a flaw in, in this entire mountain industry. Deneen says there's now more dialogue with managers, and he thinks changes will help keep skiers on the mountain safe and workers coming back. For NPR News, I'm Matt Bloom. This is NPR News. It's 42 degrees in Boston at 539, coming up at 6 on 90.9 WBUR, actor Bradley Cooper on his new movie, Maestro. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. 
Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. The Patriots lost to the Giants this afternoon, 10-7. At the Garden tonight, the Celtics are getting ready to play the Hawks. Tip-off is coming up at 6. Tonight, we can expect rain, heavy at times, low around 40. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the School of the Museum of Fine Arts at Tufts University, hosting its 45th annual art sale, December 8th through the 10th. More at smfa.tufts.edu. Hamas says it wants to extend the four-day pause with Israel, and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says he's open to extending their current pause in fighting, although no agreement has been reached yet. But he says once that is over, the Israeli ground operation in Gaza will continue. As sales of electric vehicles rise around the world, companies and governments are scrambling to get more chargers built, along with a supply chain of batteries for those vehicles. And top diplomats from South Korea, China and Japan today agreed to revive their trilateral summit, although no date has been set. I'm Janine Herbst, and you're listening to NPR News from Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru. The Subaru Share the Love event runs through January 2nd. By year's end, Subaru and its retailers will have donated over $285 million to charity. Subaru.com share. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. The holiday season means the return of many rituals, some good, some bad, some both. But one of the more low-stress holiday habits is re-watching classic Christmas movies. You could say hello to everyone from George Bailey. You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Kevin McAllister. I'm up here, you morons! Come and get me! Two, and I'll just start getting this perennial controversy out of the way right away, the 76 intertwining main characters of Love Actually. Welcome, Prime Minister. So what's this big news, then? We've been given our parts in the Nativity play. <gasps> and I'm the lobster. Actually, I'm in love. To talk all things holiday movies, we have brought in all things considered producer and film connoisseur Mark Rivers. Hey, Mark. Hey, Scott. Good to be with you. I want to start with the thing that everyone gravitates to anyway when you're talking about holiday movies, and I know you have many opinions on them. Why don't we just start with some examples that you think uh, are holiday classic movies that maybe shouldn't be, maybe don't quite hold up, oof. or are maybe actually terrible? We're starting with disappointing potential listeners here, Scott. I don't, I, I don't oof. All right. Well, <laughs> I got I to gotta be honest here. Um, I recently watched it. Uh, love Actually. Scott, what is this movie about? Like, what, it's what, about is, love. what is this movie? It's about love. 
I feel like it's love about, is actually all around us. I feel like it's about love the way like crash is about a race. <laughs> Except there are more white people in love actually. There are. Like like all right, like so what is what does this movie tell us? Does it tell us you can find love if you're like, you know, a man with like a position of power? Does it tell us like the only way you can find love as a woman is if you are a subordinate to that man in power? Does this movie tell us that it's okay to just sneak around your best friend, alleged best friend to stalk his bride with with weird creepy videos? Is it about just our love of British people? Like I just Yes. What is yes. this movie? It is the last thing. It is about our love of British people, and it is about, I think, a soundtrack elevating a movie. Fair. And I think grand, sweepy, romantic gestures, mm. we feel moved by them, even mm. if they're totally nonsensical, as most of them are. And the plot of this movie leads that you just get back to back to back to back to back to back. It's, Big, sweeping you're, gestures. You're pummeled with, with gestures. It's a, it's a pummeling of romantic gestures. You're beaten over the head with romantic gestures. And at that point, you're not stopping to think how creepy it is to stand outside the because, house with the cue cards. You're just like he's standing outside the house with the cue because cards. Because you're, you're concussed at that point. You're, yes. you're, you're con- as a viewer, you are concussed, and you're just, you just have to accept what's happening. Okay. We've gotten the hating out of the way. Yeah, yeah. What to you is actually like a great Christmas movie that you enjoy watching that holds up that you're going to watch every December? So, I mean, I have, I have, a, I have a few. Um, one, I mean, just to stick with that year, 2003, um, it's a little movie called Elf. Maybe, maybe you've heard of it. You did it! Congratulations! World's best cup of coffee. Great job, everybody! This is the John Favreau-directed movie with starring Will Ferrell as this elf who realizes that he's actually uh, human. I think one thing that makes this movie really stick out, I mean, it's a classic for a number of reasons, right? But one thing I love about it is it's not a mean movie. No. I think if you look at a, a lot of holiday movies, it's kind of underlying thread of humiliation, you know? Whether it's something like National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation or even something like It's a Wonderful Life, where indignity after indignity kind of leads him to wanting to jump off a bridge. Yeah. Or just pick your family movie where, like, secrets come out and melodrama ensues. There's this idea that the holidays kind of set out to kind of humiliate you, right? Or it's like a morality play. Like it's a morality play. Exactly. I, I think what's really key, obviously, is Will Ferrell's performance. Um, you know, this was when he was just coming off of Venice, SNL. It's very earnest and happy. It's, it's very earnest. Like, he's not playing what he kind of usually does, which is, which is kind of like comedic like kind of weapon he's playing an actual character and it's an earnest character and he and he really wins you over and just it's sweet but it's not so sweet that like your teeth fall out 20 year anniversary of two iconic in very different ways indeed holiday movies and i will add just on the opposite end of the spectrum one Mm -hmm. of the original iconic christmas movies i think it's a wonderful life does hold up i feel like there's a little Mm -hmm. bit of weirdness in the plot points but i Mm -hmm. feel like the themes are universal and even for like the deep darkness that it goes down it is a really good movie that I find something new to think about every year I see it. I mean, I think it's because the darkness was, like, really genuine, right? Yeah. I mean, like, James Stewart and the director, Frank Capra, these people who were in, served in World War II. So it's kind of a PTSD, yeah. post-war kind of movie. What'd you say? I said I wish I'd never been born. Ooh, you mustn't say things like that. I feel like the melancholy and this, like, what purpose does my life have, you know, coming you know, coming after such a profound catastrophe, world catastrophe, like... It was it was genuine for for both him and the director, and I think that's what like we're getting when we watch this movie. It's like when the movie ultimately decides that yes, like one person can have an impact for people. Mm-hmm. Like it comes from someplace like real. It's yeah. not just some kind of like storybook sentiment. Like, it came, it comes from like real life. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there is there any 
movie in your Christmas uh, movie list that that you think would surprise me? Technically, not a movie. It's kind of an, it's an hour long TV special, but I watch it every year, and it's Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. Okay. Um, so this this one is not nearly as well known as say a Charlie Brown's Christmas or Real Red Nose Reindeer, but it's kind of the first animated Christmas movie, Christmas special to be to be produced for TV. Uh-huh. Uh, for those who don't know, Mr. Magoo is this kind of like stubborn, grumpy old man who is losing his eyesight, but he like refuses to admit it, and he gets into a bunch of like goofy shenanigans. <laughs> and in the special, he is like this broad. Broadway actor, and he's playing uh, the character of Scrooge from Charles Dickens' uh, classic book. And what may, and it follows the plot very closely, but what makes it really stick out is that it's played as a musical. There's a great centerpiece uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the special, uh, When Winter Was Warm, which is about kind of the blossoming romance that Scrooge had with the, the woman who kind of got away when he realized he liked money more than he liked people. Winter was warm Summer soft that year, the winter was warm. And it's just, and it's, and it's just so beautiful, and these wonderful strings, and I, I get emotional every time I watch it. And this was, and my dad introduced me to this uh, when I was a little kid, and we watch it every year together. And um, I think for parents out there who are looking for ways to introduce their kids to either Dickens and/or musicals, I think this is a great way to do it. You know what else I have to say, Mark? General opinions starting to make out that we live in a world of hatred and greed, but I don't see that. It seems to me that love is everywhere. All right, Scott. Now we got in the conversation. You forgot to say love actually. Is, love. Is, is love actually <laughs> is, is everywhere. We got... that's, that's all things considered, producer Mark Rivers. Thank you so much. Enjoy your movie watching. Thank you, Scott. It is time now for Enlighten Me, our series about how we find meeting. And for this one, fire up Cerebro, or better yet, pour yourself a cup of tea, Earl Grey, hot, and settle into your captain's chair to hear this conversation between Rachel Martin and actor Patrick Stewart. Rachel, engage. Sometimes you find comfort in the most unusual places. It was 1997, and I was living in Japan, teaching English to middle school kids. I lived in a tiny village, and in those early days especially, I was pretty lonely. Except for my good friends, Jean-Luc and Data. The teacher who had lived in my apartment before had left a huge box of VHS tapes. There were enough episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation to keep me company for the duration of my time there. So don't worry, I did make real friends in Japan, but that show, those characters navigating the galaxy, were an important touchstone as I explored my own new world. For the most devoted of fans, Star Trek The Next Generation represents far more. Its impact on so many people has been extraordinary. Ranging from people saying that it became their education to others who said, I was going to end my life, but I couldn't because I wouldn't be able to see Star Trek anymore. That unforgettable voice is that of Sir Patrick Stewart who played the captain of the Starship Enterprise on The Next Generation for seven seasons and in four feature films, and he stars in the latest TV iteration of the franchise, Picard. I got to talk with Stuart about his new memoir called Making It So. There is a bit in the book, early in your career, I think it was your first job, but you were an assistant stage manager. It's your first job in the industry. And you write this beautiful description of what it felt like to be on the stage. And I wondered if you would read that for me. Yes, I can. Thank you. At the end of each performance, I waited for the last actor and the staff to leave the theater before switching off the lights and locking up for the night. Actually, 
I left on one light in accordance with an old theatre tradition whereby a single bare bulb is left on, hanging over the centre of the stage. With the theatre otherwise deserted, I stood beneath this light every night, taking a moment to breathe in the auditorium and the vibrations of the audience that had just left it. I looked at the set, only recently populated by our company of actors. I was part of all this now. Indeed, I had responsibilities to fulfill, even if they were as a lowly assistant stage manager. This, I thought, is now my home. I talk to a lot of people about spirituality and about the value of spiritual communities, which I think are when people who have similar values gather together and have or seek transcendent experiences. And I think Star Trek in all of its incarnations represents that to a lot of fans. It is a spiritual world. They treat it with religious reverence. Have you encountered that? I mean, do, do you get it? Yes. I see it very, very clearly and very strongly. It was about truth and fairness and honesty and respect for others, no matter who they were or what strange alien creature they looked like. Mm -hmm. That was immaterial. They were alive. And if they needed help, Jean-Luc Picard and his crew, his team, were there to give it. So yes, in a sense, we were ministers. And I have heard now so many times from individuals who have been honest enough and brave enough to tell me aspects of their life, of their health, of their mental health, and how it was all saved and improved by watching every week. I mean, how did that sit with you? That's an awful lot of responsibility to, to be that minister. I mean, you're an actor in a show and people ascribe to you this wisdom, you as a moral compass for them. Yes, I was proud of it and what we did. And I talked to Brent Spiner and Jonathan Frakes and Marina Sirtis and Gates McFadden and Michael Dorn, LeVar Burton, we talked about this kind of thing often. Hmm. And it's a glorious feeling because we're just having a good time. We love our jobs. I love acting. But and didn't that feel incongruous? That you are, no, you're acting and you're having fun, and, and, but it had this profound impact? No. It, it didn't feel at all incongruous hmm. because particularly given the role I was playing, was a man of such profound understanding and empathy. And to feel like that as a person was such a reward for what we were doing because we were enjoying our work, our job, but at the same time, we were changing people's lives. Did playing Jean-Luc Picard make you a better person? It gave me an idea of how I might become a better person, yes. I was able to absorb that and make those feelings a strong and firm part of my life. 
There are several references in your book to the supernatural, experiencing spirits or even hearing your mother's voice after she died. Do you believe in spirits? Do you believe in God? Do you believe in things that are bigger than us like that? Yes. Bigger than us, yes. I believe in presence. Hmm. And that was why, I think, when I was an assistant stage manager in my first job, I stood on that empty stage under one light, bare light bulb. Because while I was there breathing quietly, it was as though I was surrounded by all the hundreds of actors who had been on that stage for the last hundred years. Hmm. Does your feeling about transcendence and spirits, does that extend to a possible afterlife? You are 83. You have lost a lot of people in your life. You have had to say goodbye to people who have died. What do you think happens? Have you thought about your own mortality in that way? I don't know what happens, but I have a very, very deep and acute feeling that there is more than this life that we lead. But I know in some people who, who I've had relationships with, this has been an obsessive set of feelings that they have, fearful and harmful feelings. And instead, um, I am determined to see them differently, but with... Uh, you mean seeing the end simply, of life differently? Yes, as a closure of a chapter, hmm. not the end of existence. Um, and I believe in that. Increasingly now, as I get older, I, I brood a little about this, but not despairingly, not depressedly at all, but just asking myself, am I ready? Are you, or is that still the journey? That is the longing to be ready. Yes, um, I'm getting close, hmm. very close. And I am experiencing happiness on a level and of an intensity that I've never experienced in my life before. I'm so pleased for you. <laughs> Thank you. The book is called Making It So, the aptly titled memoir from actor Patrick Stewart. Sir Patrick, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. And for me too, a great pleasure and a privilege to have been talking to you. <laughs>